0: This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. All right, well, we're here again to study God's Word together, and I hope that you are ready to study God's Word. And if you are, turn to the book of John chapter 3 today. John chapter 3. If you go into the description uh, of today's live stream, you'll be able to find a link. And in that link, you will see a, uh, a, a listening guide for today so that you can follow along with me as we walk through the scriptures together. And as we always say here at Mill City, want to encourage you to follow along in the scriptures today and take notes so that you could go and teach this to someone else later this afternoon or even tomorrow. Now, in our study of the Gospel of John so far, we've seen some very big truths about Jesus. We've learned about his heavenly origins. We've seen some of his heavenly identity. And last week, we spent considerable time just looking through the Gospel of John and seeing some of the many miraculous signs and miraculous works that Jesus accomplished here on earth. And we talked about how those those signs, how those miracles ultimately point towards the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah who came from heaven. Now when we get to John chapter 3, right before John chapter 3, at the end of John chapter 2, we learn that there were many people who were believing in Jesus. Most of them were simply believing because of the works he was doing. and, and we, There wasn't a, a lot of deep, Faith being had at this point, but people were enamored by him. And John chapter 3 takes a turn in the gospel of John because now Jesus is going to have several encounters with everyday people. And some of those people are very religiously astute men. Others of them are everyday people just like you and me. Some are what we might call gross sinners. Others are people who are oppressed by infirmities or other things in life. And we're going to learn many different things about Jesus and his ministry and what he wants from human beings through these exchanges. But today, we're going to look specifically at the exchange between Jesus and this very religious man named Nicodemus. And in John chapter 3, what I'm going to do is I want to pick up and I want to read verses 1 through 16. And then I want to set us up for today's study from God's Word. Now here's what the text of Scripture tells us. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal eternal life this is one of the most consequential encounters of Jesus's ministry as a matter of fact it's where we get the key descriptor of Christians born again and Jesus talks to this very religiously astute man in this encounter and talks about entering the kingdom of God if you're in Nicodemus' shoes, surely you knew that you were on the fast track. You knew that you were on the fast track to enter God's kingdom because of just how religiously experienced you were, how theologically knowledgeable you were, and how externally blamelessly you, were, you walked in terms of righteousness. But Jesus really turns Nicodemus's idea of entering the kingdom of God upside down in this passage, as he does for you and me today. Now, I would suppose that for all of you listening today, we probably are coming from different vantage points. If you're like me or younger, there are probably very few days we think about the afterlife. I mean, our, our, our youth and our vivacity and our health oftentimes cause us to be blinded to the fact that one day our lives will end here on planet Earth and we will see God face to face. There are others listening to this podcast today, and let's just be honest, you know reality, that you have far more days behind you than you have in front of you. And so the afterlife, the kingdom of God, life after death, these things are probably a lot more meaningful for you, but regardless of whether we are 18 listening today or whether we are 80 plus today, this text applies to every one of us because every one of us must grapple with these truths. I would also guess today that if you're a human being walking on planet Earth, if we were to ask the question, do you want to enter the kingdom of God, I truly believe that most people on planet Earth would say yes. I mean, there are very few people on planet Earth who would say, no, I don't want that. I don't want to enter the kingdom of God when I die. But then there's a greater question that's going to derive from that. If you do want to enter the kingdom of God, then the question comes, how do I get there? By what criteria will I enter the kingdom of God? Well, this passage today is going to answer and address a lot of those questions and a lot of those concerns. And so here's our key question this morning for the purposes of our message. And here's where I would encourage you to pick up with your notes and your listening guide today. Here's your key question today. Do you want to enter the kingdom of God? Do you want to enter the kingdom of God? I pray that you do. And if you do, we're going to see five truths this morning that are incumbent upon us to understand, grasp, and embrace In order for us to enter the kingdom of God, so let's enter into the text and let's allow the text to speak to our hearts, challenge our minds, and to bring us to the doorway of God's kingdom this morning. Here's the first thing I want you to see here in the text If you want to enter the kingdom of God, first come to the approachable grace of Jesus. Come to the approachable grace of Jesus. Sometimes the most instructive truths for us to grasp from the Scriptures are the truths most easily overlooked. Look with me at verse 2. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus came to Jesus. Don't overlook that. Nicodemus approached Jesus. And John says Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Now we don't know exactly why John included this detail. But we can easily infer that because Nicodemus was a religious Pharisee. And because the Pharisees were antagonistic towards Jesus. Nicodemus probably came to Jesus by night in order to avoid being seen with Jesus. He probably didn't want to lose face with his Pharisaical brethren by appearing to be too cozy with Jesus Christ. But don't miss the fact that Nicodemus still came. And he came very reverently and humbly. I mean, he says, Rabbi. So he uses a very respectful title for Jesus and he says that we know that you're a teacher come from God and that no one can do the signs that you're doing unless you did come from God. And so Nicodemus comes to some very theologically accurate conclusions about Jesus's life and identity here. But as you make your way through the encounter, it's clear that there are several places where this devoutly religious man misses the mark of Jesus' message. But notice that Jesus doesn't turn him away. Jesus doesn't push Nicodemus away. Nicodemus came to Jesus and in his grace, Jesus proved to be very approachable. This is an important truth for you and for me today. You may not be a religious leader. You may not boast the spiritual religious resume that Nicodemus boasted. But just as the approachable grace of Jesus welcomed Nicodemus, it's so important for you to know today that he will welcome you as you approach him today. So come just as you are. Nicodemus came Just as he was, you can come today just as you are. Wherever you're tuning in from this morning, whether it is your kitchen, whether it is your dining room, whether it is your living room or whether it's on the treadmill, whether you are very broken today or whether you are living in spiritual victory today, wherever you are, you can come just as you are to the throne of grace before Jesus. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, come to Jesus, because in his grace, he's very approachable. Secondly, if you want to enter the kingdom of God today, not only should you come to the approachable grace of Jesus, secondly, you should recognize the total inadequacy of your religious credentials. Recognize the total inadequacy of your religious credentials. Now, verse 1 tells us that Nicodemus boasted a very stellar religious resume. It says that he was a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. He was actually a member of the Sanhedrin. Spiritually speaking, he was a religious leader. But then socially, he was a lawmaker. In our context today, we might call him Senator Nicodemus. And the Pharisees were, were basically the religious sheriffs of the first century Mediterranean world. They were experts in the Jewish scriptures and geniuses in matters of theology and law. As a matter of fact, they knew all 613 commandments in the Old Testament scriptures. And then they divided those 613 commandments into the do's and the don'ts. They separated them into weighty commandments and the not so weighty commandments. They would even go beyond the commandments themselves and extrapolate additional prohibitions just to ensure They didn't get anywhere close to breaking any of them. Pharisees like Nicodemus cared deeply about following the commandments and living as blameless of a life as possible on planet earth. Put it this way, it would have been extremely difficult to find any skeletons in Nicodemus's closet. Theologically speaking, you would be hard-pressed to find anyone more theologically astute in spiritual matters. But after hearing Jesus' message of salvation, Nicodemus is perplexed. He's perplexed. Lord, how is what you are saying true? How is it even possible? And look at verse 9 in Jesus' response to him. Verse 10 Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? And by answering this way, Jesus instructed Nicodemus, and now by proxy, because it's in God's word, he instructs us with a very sobering reality. Our religious credentials are totally inadequate to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is no more impressed by your spiritual resume than he was impressed by the resume of Nicodemus. He's not impressed by the family you grew up in. He's not impressed by your country of origin or your church attendance, your ethnicity, your church denomination, or your spiritual works. On the day of judgment, when you see God face to face, he's not going to place all of your good works on this side of a scale to see if they outweigh the bad side of the scale and then say, enter into the kingdom of God because of all the good that you have done. I want you to think about this this morning, brother, sister, my friend. If anyone would have been welcomed into the kingdom of God, based on his or her religious credentials alone, it would have been a man like Nicodemus. If there were ever an opportunity for Jesus to look at a human being and say, congratulations, what a great guy, enter into my kingdom. If there were ever an opportunity for Jesus to say that, it would be, in this situation, with this man, Nicodemus. But instead of congratulating him on his performance, Jesus tells Nicodemus something altogether different. He, says for, he basically says, for someone so smart, and someone so religiously astute and experienced, you don't even understand the basics of what I'm trying to tell you. You understand so many complex matters of theology, but you're missing the one thing that's so important. This morning, Jesus is not looking for your credentials, and that's actually really good news for you this morning. As a matter of fact, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us this in Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds that, of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He actually raised the standard even higher in Matthew five forty eight, saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus never tells us to be a good person or to be a religious person in order to enter the kingdom of God. He tells us that you must be a perfect person. So what's the point? The point is, spiritual resumes are impossible. Religious credentials will never impress God because no one is perfect like God. Jesus gives us these commands. He gives us these truths to illuminate to our hearts and minds that you cannot do it. So there has to be another way. And Jesus gives it to us in this passage. So if you want to enter the kingdom of God today, and I hope that you do, I want you to first come to the approachable grace of Jesus. But also, as you come to his grace, I want you to recognize the total inadequacy of your religious credentials to get you there. But thirdly, I want to encourage you from the text to believe the radical message of the gospel. Believe the radical message of the gospel. In verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I want you to stop there for a second. After knowing this spiritual resume of this man, and coming to Jesus and calling him rabbi, saying that no one does the work, uh, these works unless he is from God. Jesus has opportunity there to congratulate him, doesn't he? But instead, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And you go down again in verse 5 after Nicodemus is perplexed the first time. And he says again, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And on the surface level, this verse probably perplexes you as much as it did Nicodemus 2,000 years ago. I mean, what do we do with this text? What do we do with what Jesus is telling us? Ultimately, what Jesus is showing us is he's giving us a glimpse into his gospel message for salvation. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to enter the kingdom of God? And he uses this biblical metaphor to to express it to us. Now, we don't have time to unpack everything that this this passage teaches us this morning about entering the kingdom of God or about his his gospel message. But I want to show you at least three things from this passage that we learn about Jesus' radical gospel. And here's the first one. Jesus' gospel is divine. It is divine in nature. In verse 5 He says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus is pointing us towards not a natural birth, because every one of us on planet Earth, whether we know it or not, We came to earth through a natural birth process. And if you don't know it, your mother can most definitely attest to it. It is ingrained in her memory forever. Every one of us is born naturally. But Jesus says in order to enter the kingdom of God, you cannot be born just naturally. You must also be born spiritually. And just as you had nothing to do with being born naturally, There's nothing that you have to do with being born spiritually. It is a divine work of God. Now these verses can be very perplexing and very confusing for us as human beings. But uh, I believe it best to help us interpret this passage by looking back at the Old Testament. Because in Ezekiel chapter 36, you have prophesied what God is going to do through Jesus Christ, through the new birth. And God speaks of it, of his work inside of a human being's heart. And here's what we read in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. God promises this to his people. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When you read Ezekiel 36, you see the work of God in a human being's heart over and over again. I will sprinkle. I will cleanse. I will give. I will remove. I will give, I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. This is the work of God. The gospel message is this, that God himself does spiritual work in people's lives. I want you to think about this for a minute if you're a follower of Jesus today. If you're a follower of Jesus today, I want you to think about your life before following Jesus. I think about my life I didn't care about the things of God. I didn't care about how I sinned against God. I didn't care about the word of God. I didn't care about the mission of God. It just simply was not a part of my nomenclature. But then something happened in my heart. And if you would think about your own life today, like you can remember the time before you followed Jesus, before you were awakened to the things of God, and then you think about your life today, and sure, you may not be everything that God wants you to be, and yes, you may fail and you may fall day to day, but don't you care about the things of God today in ways that you didn't care about before? It's because God has wrought a work in your heart. It's because he has removed your heart of stone that didn't care about the things of God, and he replaced it with the heart of flesh that's now softened towards the things of God. It's because you've been born again, and it's that divine work of God that he's done on your behalf. The radical message of the gospel, Jesus' gospel, is divine in nature. Secondly, I want you to see this from the text that Jesus' gospel is exclusive, his gospel message is exclusive. And two times in this passage, we see this. In verse 3, Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless, cannot. You go to verse 5, he says the exact same thing. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus has narrowly defined entering the kingdom of God this way. You must be born again to get there. Jesus leaves no room for other ways. He leaves no room for other gods. He leaves no room for other moral paths or other moral teachings. He leaves no room other than being born again by His Spirit through faith in Him to get you there. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, I know that in a pluralistic culture where we have freedom of religion in our country and we celebrate the fact that people from all faiths and and all ethnicities and all countries of origin, they may practice their faith as they see fit and they have freedom to do that in our country as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. And as a country, we should celebrate that fact. But just because we have equal rights to practice our faith, does not mean that every faith or truth claim has, stands on equal ground. Jesus himself says this. His gospel is an exclusive gospel. It's a narrow gospel. And I want you to recognize that today, that Jesus' gospel is divine. His gospel is exclusive. And the third thing we see is that Jesus' gospel is transformative it's transformative. It actually does a work inside of the human being's heart. And, and we see this subtly when you get to verse 7. He says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit you got to love the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. On Friday night, as I was sitting at home and, and studying, it was late Friday night, and I was studying in preparation for this morning's message. This cold front was, was moving through that, that came through this weekend, and as I was sitting there and reading and, and typing away and prepping for this morning and hear Jesus talking about the wind, and, and I could just hear the wind howling outside my window and, and throughout the evening, and it just gave such a vivid illustration for me. I remember in two thousand and five after Hurricane Katrina, which is the most devastating storm to reach the continental u s in my lifetime and and I grew up in in south central Mississippi, and so I was very accustomed to hurricanes coming through during hurricane season, but I had not experienced a storm like this and and I lived here, of course, in two thousand and five but I remember taking three different mission teams to the Mississippi Gulf Coast to participate in hurricane relief after that time. And, and I remember driving, uh, flying into Gulfport airport and driving up Highway 49 towards Hattiesburg, where I had graduated from the University of Southern Mississippi. And and I remember driving up that highway and, and looking at the pine trees. And that area of the country is known as the Pine Belt because of the very tall, towering pine trees that just saturate the terrain of Southern Mississippi. And I was captivated by how all of these tall, Towering pine trees were literally just snapped like toothpicks. And I wasn't there on August 25th, 2005, when Hurricane Katrina ravaged the Mississippi Gulf Coast. I wasn't there. I didn't feel the wind. I didn't even hear the wind on that fateful evening and morning. But I could see the effects of the wind all around me even months later. That's Jesus' point. You can't see the wind. You don't see it. You can hear it. But you most definitely see the effects of the wind. You see the rustling of the leaves and the branches. You see the branches that might fall on the ground. Or even after a blizzard, you may see the down power lines that came as a result of those whipping winds. And the same thing is true about the message of salvation that Jesus is telling us about here. When the Spirit of God comes inside a person's life, it's going to have a demonstrative effect. It's going to be very transformative in that person's life. And although you didn't see the Spirit, and you didn't hear the Spirit audibly talk to you, you most definitely see the transformation of the Spirit in that person's life. And so if, you're going to, if you want to enter the kingdom of God today, I want you to come to the approachable grace of Jesus. I want you to recognize the total inadequacy of your religious credentials. And I want you to instead believe the radical message of salvation, Jesus' radical gospel message today. I want you to see two other things before we close today. Here's number four. Surrender to the heavenly authority of Jesus. Surrender... To the heavenly authority of Jesus. Now, you may be hearing this today and you may be thinking, you see, this is my problem with Christianity. Christianity is just simply too closed minded for me, it's too narrow minded for me. It's too exclusive for me. It's just like you Christians to think that only you have the right answers and only you have the right way of salvation. It's very difficult for me to wrap my mind around that because it just seems so unfair and it just seems so intolerant in a pluralistic relativistic culture like the one in which we live. Friend, I have to concede something to you from a human argument, from a human standpoint, I totally get it. I totally get how this argument sounds to our Western 21st century ears. And I would concede that to you. But what I want you to know today is that the gospel that we're proclaiming, the gospel that we're telling you today, the gospel we're reading about today? It's not true because of the authority of some 40 year old white guy in Lowell, Massachusetts today. That's not why this is true. That's not why I would appeal to you to believe this. It's not predicated upon my statement or my church's statement or our denomination's theological position. The authority is solely based on the heavenly authority of Jesus himself. And even to this first century religious leader, Nicodemus, Jesus makes that point. If you go down to verse 11, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. What is Jesus telling us? Jesus is telling us and reminding us of his divine origins. He's reminding us that he himself came from God Almighty and that no one from planet earth has ever ascended into heaven on his own and that the only one descending from heaven was the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ. And he's saying that he He is the one who is he. He is the one who is coming from God. And so his authority is not an earthly authority. His authority is a heavenly authority. And that's why we believe him. And that's why we say that he is worthy of our surrender. He's worthy of my surrender. He's worthy of your surrender. And he's worthy of the surrender of every people, tongue, tribe, and nation on planet earth. So if you want to enter the kingdom of God, come to the approachable grace of Jesus. Recognize the total inadequacy of your religious credentials to get you there, and instead believe the the radical gospel message of Jesus to get you there surrendering to his ultimate heavenly authority. And the last thing, and we would be remiss if we didn't focus on this, that I want you to see if you want to enter the kingdom of God is then revel in the demonstrative love of God. Revel in the demonstrative love of God. If we go down and look at verse 16, this is probably the most famous of all Bible verses. For God so loved, the world. Now, that word so can have different connotations, can't it? I mean, we could read that passage, and in our English language, we could think, God so loved the world. How much did God love the world? He so loved the world. We could read it that way, but we would be inaccurate in our reading if that's the way we read it. There are some other translations that translate this probably a little bit better. And translate it this way, that God loved the world in this way. Or in this way, God loved the world. And how did he love the world? He gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but may have eternal life. I want you to think about your loved ones for a minute. Think about your son or your daughter, your mom or your dad, or perhaps your husband or your wife or perhaps even a friend how do we know that they love us well if i were to ask you how do you know that your spouse loves you you very rarely would you say well because he tells me all the time oftentimes yes we focus on the fact that people tell us that they love us but we also quite often look towards the ways in which they've loved us well he spends time with me or she, she's given me these, these great gifts or um, they're, they're really deep conversations and meaningful talks that we have or he expresses his love by putting his arm around me or giving me a kiss on the forehead. You see, we don't just talk about the, just simply hearing that someone loves us. And that's very important but we also want to see it lived out that they actually do love me, that it's, love is not simply something I feel, it's not simply something I say, it's also something that I do. And what John 3.16 shows us is that God doesn't just simply have warm, affectionate feelings towards us, even though he does. God also took his love from his mind and from his heart and he expressed it. And the way he expressed that love or showed that love was by giving his only son. Well, well Chris, what does it mean that God, gave, God expressed his love? Well, it says that he gave his only son. And what does it mean that he gave his only son? Well, verses 14 and 15 defines it for us. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now to understand this passage, we need to go to the Old Testament. And if we go to the Old Testament, we're going to read a passage that is really peculiar, but it's the way in which God acted among his people hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus said these words. God had rescued his people of Israel from slavery. He had rescued from the from the oppressive uh, uh, the oppression of Uh, the Egyptian army. And he did it in a very demonstrative way. And now God is leading his people towards the promised land. But the people start grumbling and complaining, just like you and I start grumbling and complaining once things start getting a little easier. And God starts providing for the people, and he provides food for them, and he starts raining down these bread cakes from heaven called manna. And the people are getting bored and tired of eating those cakes. So they start grumbling and complaining And basically telling Moses, we were better off under slavery. Can you believe the audacity of them to say that? And here's what happens in Numbers chapter 21. And we read this in Numbers 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. That never ends well, by the way. And they start saying, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. Can you imagine? The people are starving to death and God provides for them food and they look and say, this food is worthless. We would send our kids away from the dinner table with no dinner that night, wouldn't we? Verse 6, the Lord then sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. This is how awesome God is and how holy God is. Okay, I provide for you and you complain about my provision. Then here, deal with these snakes. And people literally died because of this. The people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. You think? I mean, snakes would get my attention. Like people who know me well, I'm petrified of snakes. I'm the kind of guy that I I make Indiana Jones look like the brave, courageous one, right? And so verse 7, the people came to Moses. We have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. I join you. Take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So as Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at that bronze serpent and live. God, even in the midst of his people's sin, even in the midst of their waywardness, even in the midst of their ungratefulness, God made a way for salvation. God made a way for life. God made a way for healing. You look at the staff, you live. You know, there were still Israelites who didn't look. You know, there were still Israelites who refused and looked away and they died. Jesus appeals to this episode in redemptive history. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he was lifted up on the cross of Calvary. He was lifted up on the day that he died for the sins of the world. And what Jesus is telling you through this passage this morning and what Jesus is telling me is that if we want to enter the kingdom of God, And if we want to live forever, not only having life to the fullest here on this planet, but also having life to the fullest for all of eternity, you look at another staff. You look at the cross of Calvary. And you believe and you place your faith and trust in the Jesus of that cross. You place your hope and faith in the Jesus who came down from heaven in order to bring you up to heaven. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. And so will you be like the Israelites of old? Will you be like them? And will you turn from your sin? Would you turn away from your ungratitude? Would you turn away from the sins that you're walking in and your unbelief? And would you turn towards the Jesus of the scriptures? I want you to know today that I know that we're not meeting face to face. And I know that there is a lot that is lost by not meeting together as a faith family. And I know that there are some uh, 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 prohibitions uh, meeting virtually like this. But I still want to give you an invitation. If God is doing something inside of your heart, although we're not meeting face to face on a Sunday morning... I want you to know that you can follow the links in the description of this live stream and it can take you to a connection card and you can fill that out and you can let us know what God is doing inside your heart. If there's a way that we can pray for you, if you want to talk about what it means to trust in Jesus Christ for the first time and enter the kingdom of God, we would love to meet with you via phone or via FaceTime or other means and we would love to pray for you and walk you through what it means to become a Christian. But however God would lead you to respond today, would you respond to the text of Scripture we looked at today and be encouraged that Jesus has paved a way for you and for me to enter the kingdom of God? Let me pray for you as we close our time together this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for making a way to know you and to enter the kingdom of God. Father, give us grace today to know that you are very approachable and to overcome whatever is is hindering us from taking those steps. Would you cause us to make those first steps? Father, turn our eyes to see the total inadequacy of our religious credentials and that they pale in comparison to the perfection of what your son offers through his radical message of salvation. Lord, may we surrender to your ultimate heavenly authority. And Lord, as we do so, may we revel. May we revel in your demonstrative, lavish love towards us. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.